All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to Judges chapter 7. Judges chapter 7. Some of you may not know this, but one of my favorite things to do is to cook. My interest um, in it started when I was a kid. I used to hang around the kitchen and watch my mom cook. And as I've gotten older, I've discovered that I really enjoy it. I like finding recipes and following recipes and creating and seeing it kind of all come together. And in fact, we kind of have a a new family joke that um, years from now, Julie and I are going to move to Florida and I'm going to drive a tram at Disney because I think that would be fun because everybody's happy, right? Everybody's happy when they come to Disney. So I'm going to drive a tram at Disney, and then I'll try to serve in some church and bless them somehow and uh, just encourage the pastor or teach a class or whatever. And then I'm going to open a small restaurant. I think that would be fun. would that be a blast? So it, it'll never happen, but I like to think about it. And, I, I, and that's how much I like to, it's how much I like to cook. It's how much I like palm trees, too. I love palm trees and the beach, but... I, I do like to cook, and, and if I ever sit down and watch TV, which is less and less than it used to be, I'm either watching sports or I am watching the Food Network, because I love the Food Network. And I really love, and this is not on the Food Network, I love watching MasterChef. Anybody watch MasterChef? Man, I love that show. Though it really intimidates me when they get a little 11-year-old on MasterChef Junior, and they're like making beef wellington, or they're, they're making a chocolate souffle with creme anglaise and a raspberry coulis, which I'd eat right now. And, and I watch those little kids, I'm like, how do those kids learn to do that? That's like way beyond me. Well, one of the things that I've learned in watching cooking shows, and this goes all the way back to the Galloping Gourmet. Remember Graham Kerr, the Galloping Gourmet? He was a strong believer. And um, I used to watch Emerald Live when, when cooking Food Network first started. I loved Emerald Live. But one of the things I've learned in watching that that I didn't know before is the concept of making a reduction. All right? How many have made a reduction before? Three of you. That's awesome. No, 10 of you. How many know what a reduction is? The same 10. No, I'm just kidding. All right? A reduction is when you let a sauce simmer, kind of at a, at a light boil. And what you're doing in a reduction is you're removing the water through evaporation. So as you simmer it, and you simmer it usually for hours, you're trying to reduce the volume of the liquid, the volume of the sauce, by at least half. Now, the reason you do this is to concentrate and intensify the flavor. Now, that's not the only result. We'll talk about some other reasons in a couple minutes. But in this type of cooking, when you do a sauce reduction, less is more. The less you have, the more it reduces down, it becomes stronger, and it becomes better by being smaller. Now, as pretty much anything in life, there is a spiritual truth that can be picked up out of the ordinary. And as I thought about that this week and thought about our text and our series on small, uh, this really came together and and it really fit with what we're going to study this morning from Judges chapter 7. So the, the name of this message is A Wonderful Reduction, and that's kind of a double meaning here. We're going to draw out four important conclusions about the spiritual principle of reduction. And we're going to use some cooking illustrations throughout it, although I won't bore you too much with that. But um, let's talk about the spiritual principle 
of reduction. Let's start by reading uh, the first eight verses of Judges chapter 7. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the string of Herod. And the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel would become boastful, saying, My own power has delivered me. Therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is afraid and trembling, let him return and depart from Mount Gilead. So 22,000 people returned, but 10,000 remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Now therefore it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So the Lord brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Now the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth, were 300 men, but all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 who lapped and will give the Midianites into your hand. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands, and Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now, the setting for this text is, as usual, Israel is in turmoil. Just as the Lord had warned them they were going to be in turmoil at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. And the nation now is in the promised land, but Joshua's just died. And in the short term, they kind of rally. If you look at chapters 1 and 2, you'll see that they're kind of bonding together and kind of, kind of doing the right thing. They go and take Jerusalem from the Canaanites. But, but they didn't drive out all the inhabitants of the land. And if you read through the first part of the Old Testament, God is continually telling his people, drive out sin, do the complete job, don't do things halfway, take it all the way and do what you need to do to show that you're desirous for me and that you're pure in your hearts. But the Israelites don't do that. And God said, the reason I want you to do this, and this is repeated all throughout the Pentateuch, the first five books, is that if you don't do this, you're going to be influenced by the foreign gods that are in the land that you're going into. And that's exactly what happens here at the start of the book of Judges. They start to worship Baal, and they start to intermarry with other nations, which God had told them repeatedly not to do. And eventually, God uh, causes them to become slaves to the Mesopotamians. So the Lord, to try to rescue this, establishes judges that lead the people spiritually, that give them direction from the Lord, because there's not really a prominent leader like Moses or Joshua at this point. And they discern the Lord's leading and, and determine how God is trying to help them against their enemies. Now, the sixth judge, a man named Gideon, is, is now employed to help against the attack of the Midianites. Midianites were a people that were in the central part of the promised land. Now, at the end of chapter 6, uh, you can see this in verses 36 and beyond, Gideon asked the Lord twice 
for confirmation. Are you going to give us victory as we go against the Midianites because they've brought all their people down and they're ready to attack us? Lord, are you going to help us? And God says, absolutely, I'm going to give you victory. So we can kind of infer between chapter 6 and chapter 7 that Gideon develops kind of a logical, tactical strategy of, of how they're going to deal with this, kind of, a, kind of a good plan for how they can have victory that God's promised. The problem is Gideon's plan is not God's plan. God has a different intent in mind. In fact, he's going to so radically change Gideon's plan that if the Lord wasn't the one saying this, it would seem absolutely ludicrous. It would be ridiculous. It would make no sense that when you're facing an army of this size that you're going to go into battle with 300 men. But that's what happens. Look back at the text. The Lord reduces the number of troops from 32,000, which is where they started, to 10,000. Now, that would have been scary enough because they were outnumbered 12 to 1, 8,000% less armies at this point going to face the Midianites. But the Lord says, well, that's all fine, well, and good, but that's not actually my final plan. Now I'm going to reduce the number of soldiers down to 300. Now anybody with a brain would conclude that it's impossible to win at that point. But the Lord had said, you're going to win. I'm going to give you victory. And he reveals the first reason of the four that we're going to have this morning, why he reduces. Okay? First reason is that reduction destroys our proud belief that we are the reason for success. Reduction destroys our proud belief that we are the reason for success. Now, the Lord tells Gideon up front, here's why I'm going to do this. If I don't do this, if I don't reduce you down, the people are going to become proud, and they're going to brag when I give victory that they're the ones responsible for the victory. Now, that shouldn't surprise us when we think back to all the times when the Lord delivered them, especially the time he delivered their grandparents and their great-grandparents out of Egypt with, with absolutely jaw-dropping miracles. And the people walk through the Red Sea on dry ground, and, and they hear the voice of the Lord at Mount Sinai, and they see God providing bread every day and quail and, and water. Everything they knew about whatever was based on what God had done. And what, what do they do? Complain, gripe, rebel, want to go back to Egypt. They were so delusional in their minds, so, so spiritually calloused, it's hard to imagine how they could be in the face of all they had seen. And now they don't have Moses, and they don't have Joshua to keep them straight. And, and quickly, very quickly after Joshua dies, they go right back to their default position of we know best and we don't need to ask the Lord for help. Now, Israel had the same condition that we sometimes tend to have. We forget the Lord's work. We take him for granted. We become kind of a little bit disillusioned and ungrateful. And we take credit for what we don't do. And I see this in myself a lot of times when I'll pray and pray. And I'll, Lord, can you please do this? Can you please answer this prayer? It's such an important request. And, and Lord, can you do this? And then the Lord does it. And what happens? What, what happens when we do that, right? We immediately jump to the next thing. 
We don't take nearly, probably a tenth of the time that we spent begging the Lord for help to go back and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for doing what? Unbelievable. I can't believe how you worked. I can't believe you actually answered that prayer, that you would hear my feeble, faithless prayer, and that you would work. We, we, we barely take time to thank him. Sometimes we even forget. Israel not only forget, forgot, but they were, they were arrogant about it. They thought it was all up to them. So the Lord says, I tell you what, Gideon, let's make sure that there's no possibility for them to even entertain the thought of pride. You know, pride has such a powerful pull in our minds that the Lord will constantly challenge us on it. Whether it is by really correcting us and stripping us of power or sometimes even through little funny reminders. I had, I've had plenty of the first kind of my life. Plenty of stripping and, and controlling and correcting and making sure that I understand that it's not me, it's him. But I had uh, a, a memory last night of the second kind, just kind of a funny reminder. Uh, keeping with the food theme, I, about five years into our marriage, Julie and I had discovered an amazing dish at a restaurant called LNN Seafood. And the dish was called Aztec Chicken Pasta. It's a penne pasta. I'm just going to describe it because it's so wonderful. It's a penne pasta in a smoky, spicy, cheesy sauce topped with a grilled lime chicken. And on top of that is fresh salsa. Sounds good, right? Man, it was so good. Now, we didn't have any money in those days. So on very special occasions, we'd go to LNN Seafood because it was not cheap. And we'd get Aztec Chicken Pasta. And then at one point I said, you know, I've really got to lose some weight. So we said, tell you what, as a reward, let's not go again to LNN until I lose the weight. And then when I lose the weight, we'll go and indulge as a reward. I know it's real counterproductive, right? So I eventually lost the weight. And we went back one night. We're like, all right, let's go to LNN tonight. And, and we're all excited. We dress up. We're like, okay, let's go to LNN. And we get there and the restaurant's closed permanently. Now, that was disappointing. See, that's exactly how I felt. So I said, well, all right, I'm going to surprise Julie. I'm going to recreate Aztec chicken pasta for her. So from my memory, on my day off, I worked all afternoon. And I made a sauce that I was convinced was almost exact. So she came home from work, and she came in, and her husband was smiling ear to ear like I was so... I was so proud of myself. And, and she sat down, and I put the plate in front of her, and she looked up at me and said, what is this? I wasn't discouraged. I wasn't. I thought she just forgot what Aztec chicken pasta is like. <laughs> so I said, honey, this is, I made Aztec for you. And she kind of looked at me, and she took a bite, and she goes, this is not Aztec chicken pasta. Now I was discouraged. But she was exactly right. It wasn't even in the same ballpark. The ingredients were completely and utterly wrong. Now, I know that because I ended up contacting LNN's parent company. And after about two months of bugging them, they eventually sent me the actual recipe designed to be served to 300 people. Now, you talk about reduction. <laughs> I, I, I had to do some math. It had been a while since I had done any math. 
So now we make it at home. It takes about 90 minutes. It's incredibly labor-intensive, but it's our favorite meal. And every time I make it, I'm humbled by my original failure because when I look at the recipe, which has over 40 ingredients, I realize that there is no way I could have come up with that. I didn't even have the right premise. I thought it was a red pepper sauce, and there's red peppers nowhere in the recipe. Now, I have no claim to success. When we make that meal and we actually take pictures of it and we're like so excited, we're having Aztec tonight and everybody like gets in an instant good mood. But when I make that meal, I realize that some chef out there had far more wisdom than I'll ever have and I can take no claim of success for making what somebody else designed. Now, I want us to remember that because that's how you and I need to view every success that we have. Not that the Lord's demeaning us or saying you're worthless or, or taking all the joy away, but we need to remember that every good and perfect gift comes from where? Above, right? It's not my credit. It's not what I've done. Everything I have, everything you have, wisdom, skills, capabilities, gifting, accomplishments, that all comes from the Lord. So we need reduction sometimes to, to take away and knock down our pride. Now let me give a second reason. Reduction also, verses 3 and 4, weeds out potential problems. Notice in these verses that part of the reason why the Lord took the army from 32,000 to 300 is because most of the soldiers didn't want to be there in the first place. The original 22,000, we see this in verse uh, 3, the original 22,000 take off. As soon as he says you can go home, they're like out the door because they were physically trembling. They were so scared that they're like shaking. Now that seems understandable when you're facing an army 12 times your size and a ruthless one at that. So Josh, uh, the, the, the Gideon says, you guys can go. Boom, running out the door as fast as they can. Now you're left with a smaller group. A and this smaller group are eliminated because they're not ready for battle. In fact, their posture, which we'll look at in a minute, of drinking the water made them kind of unaware and defenseless, which shows when we go into battle, they're not going to be alert. They're not going to be sharp for what needs to happen. Now, the Lord used the principle of reduction here to show how he stands against fear and insecurity and lack of faith and what's divisive. Now, you say, well, that seems a little harsh for a beautiful September morning, but it's not because all fear and insecurity, and this is hard for us to hear, but it's the truth, all fear and insecurity is based on a greater focus on self than on the Lord. All fear, all insecurity is based on what I'm feeling rather than the Lord's sufficiency because his presence and his perfect love casts out all fear. And if we're abiding in him, those two words have no power. Now we know it's an issue of faith because he says without faith, it's impossible to please me. So there's no way for us ever to justify a lack of faith or, or uh, as, as logical and reasonable. And Paul, you don't know my situation. It's necessary. I can't trust the Lord right now. Don't ever utter that sentence because it's absolutely false. You can always trust the Lord. He's always worthy of our dependence and our reliance. And all throughout the word, 
he talks about unity and agreement between his children and his church. So whoever and whatever is divisive, he will discipline. Now, look at it in reverse. Imagine if he hadn't done that here. Imagine if he had left all 32,000 instead of reducing down to 300. Imagine if he had said, this is great, Gideon. You got 32,000 guys that are willing to go into battle. You're outnumbered 12 to 1, but, but take this 32,000. What would have happened? What kind of morale would have been there? What kind of effort would have existed if the other group had gone along? You would have had 300 men who were faithful and serious and the rest who are proud and fearful and wanting to go home. And think about what happens. What, what happens to us when we get into a battle and we start to feel like we're losing? How does that affect us psychologically? Well, think about what would have happened if they started seeing the tide turn against them. The proud people would have become critical because that's what proud people do. And they might have said, well, we're not going to serve because they should have listened to us. We, we, we had good advice. The generals didn't want to listen to us, so we're going to rebel. This is what we see going on in our country right now in frightening ways. We're going to rebel. We're not going to do it. We know better. We're not getting our way, and we're going to become mutinous. We're, we're, we're just not going to do it. That's what the proud people would have done. And then if the battle was not going well, the fearful people, what would have happened? Would they have gained courage? No, they would have become more scared and lose hope and probably run away at any sign of engagement. They would have been completely useless in the time of need because they were so gripped by fear. So, so you've got 32,000, but you've got the proud people being frustrated. You've got the fearful people running away. And then you've got the third group, the group that wanted to go home in the first place. Now, they're not going to rally. They're going to be fatalistic. They're going to make no effort to fight. In fact, they might even raise a white flag and said, we're going to lose, so we're going to, start, we're going to go to the other side. We're, we're going to take care of ourselves. See, it wasn't beneficial to have more. It was beneficial to have less and have the right people. And that's where we need to ask ourselves, based on these traits, what does the Lord need to reduce in my life? Is it sin that's controlling you day after day? Relationships that are dragging you down, that are harming your witness? Negative attitude? Chronic anxiety? Stubbornness? Self-sufficiency? What is it? And knowing ourselves like we do, if we're honest... Are we willing to humble ourselves and say, Lord, I need, to, I need you to forgive me for this and I need you to free me from this because it's, it's dragging me down. I'm not serving you well. I'm not living for you well because I need you to reduce this. I need you to take it away. You know, I've learned something in my research as I really got into what does it mean to reduce sauces. I've learned that not only does less water improve flavor, but some of the acids and the other strong tasting compounds are actually boiled off in the process too. And that enhances the flavor of the liquid by the removal. In other words, there are not only um, some unpleasant tasting compounds, but there are some potential problems because if you don't boil those down, it remains and becomes acidic. That's, that's Judges 7, 3 to 5. 
where God reduces to eliminate problems. Now look at the third thought in verses 3 to 5. Reduction forces us to remember that we need the Lord's help alone. Reduction forces us to remember that we need the Lord's help alone. Now, over 30 years of ministry, I've worked in churches as big as 4,000 and churches as small as 40. The greatest challenge of working in the smaller churches is feeling sometimes like you're ineffective and, and even being very blunt, being a little jealous. Why, why do we not have thousands? Why are we not, you know, having that kind of impact? And I don't say that with any uh, lack of joy or bitterness this morning. I'm so in love with this church and so in love with what God's doing here and so thrilled at what he's done. I want to say that very clearly. But I want to tell you, this is a chronic, chronic issue among pastors in almost all the churches in the country. Because pastors are told in books and seminars that something must be wrong with you and you must not be doing something right if your church isn't big. Because here's the phrase that comes out, what has life grows. So if your church isn't big, we're told, something must be wrong. There must be a disease or an infection or a problem because your church, if it's healthy, should be big. Now, the problem is, and I've been doing a lot of research on this, we're being told that by pastors of huge churches. And there are a hundred to a thousand reasons why a church gets large. But this message has created so much insecurity and so much discouragement in so many pastors, and I've been there. I'm not there now, praise the Lord, but I've been there. It creates so much insecurity and discouragement that an average of 30 pastors a day are resigning. Suicide is highest rate among pastors than any other profession. Just take that in for a minute. 30 a day resigning, leaving ministry, or taking drastic measures. Now, on a less serious scale... It's very easy for pastors and church members to feel that we aren't doing that much, that our congregation uh, is not making a huge difference, which is why this book that I've been reading or have read, Small Church Essentials, has been so wonderful. Because here's a small church pastor who is saying, don't be discouraged. And he brings out some facts and some thoughts, and I want to share these with you this morning because I want to encourage us as a church, all right? Ninety-five, I talk for a living, 95% of the churches in this country have less than 350 people. 95% have less than 350 people. And it struck me as I was thinking about that, that Gideon's army was about the same size, about 300 people. And I don't believe that's a coincidence at all. I believe that the Lord purposely reduced them to that number, if nothing else, than to teach and encourage 95% of the churches in this country and most of the churches around the world because most of the churches around the world are house churches or small churches. Now, just, just be grabbed by that for a minute. The average church is small. Now, does that mean large churches, mega churches aren't important? Absolutely not, and he does nothing to denigrate that, and we never should. Large churches and mega churches 
are vitally important to the work of the Lord. They have a strong influence. They have the opportunity to minister to people on multiple levels that a church like us uh, can't necessarily do. But let's be clear. Mega churches only represent 1% of the churches in the country. And they have to remember soberly that with great power comes great responsibility, right? So they need to be careful that, that pride and prominence don't become the driving force of ministry, that, that attracting people, bringing people in, doesn't compromise theology or ministry. Now, at the same time, smaller churches, we need to be on guard too. We need to be on guard that we aren't unnecessarily critical of larger churches because we're jealous or because we're resentful and we can become just as proud in how we do things and draw conclusions that aren't correct and even damage other churches' credibility with criticism. Now, where am I going with this? I'm going to the place that all things being said, the conclusion of this book is that maybe it's not a coincidence that most of the churches in the country are small, about the size of Gideon's army. Because over half the people who attend church choose to go to a smaller church. And like with Gideon, that doesn't mean that the church is weak. It doesn't imply that they're close to visitors. It doesn't imply that they don't care about outreach. It doesn't imply that they're unhealthy or ineffective or, or poorly led. Instead, quite possibly, listen now, maybe that's God's intentional and ideal plan. Because what we can do as a church, maybe large churches can't, in the same way large churches can do things that we can't do. And each has its purpose. Each has its role. Now, that doesn't mean being a smaller church is an excuse. It doesn't mean that we're just going to settle for doing things poorly and just kind of get by and that our ministry's just going to be inward. If anything, I needs, think it needs to push us to more intentional evangelism and, and reaching out and bringing people to the Lord and telling them about the gospel and encouraging them to attend church because we have space. We have space. And it's a more personal setting to effectively disciple people. And as we said earlier, you can use your gifts and you can serve the Lord and we're accountable to each other. You, you can't come into this church and hide like you have. I've been in churches of six, 7,000 people. You can walk in and you'll get greeted, but, but you don't have to interact with anybody if you don't want to. You can sit in the balcony and watch and then leave and not have any interaction. You can't do that here. And a lot of people choose that because they want the relationship. So, what are we doing? We're going to be a place where quality, effective ministry is done in every way because the Lord is worthy of that. And we're going to ask the Lord to help us, and we're going to grow in maturity, and we're going to be passionate about worship and prayer, and we're going to give faithfully, and we're going to be people-oriented, and we're going to build strong, edifying, discipling relationships because the Lord wants to do an awesome work in our midst. Now you say, well, Paul, how do you know that? How do you know he'll help us and bless us? Well, look back at verses 6 to 8. Let me give you the fourth thought. Reduction reveals the amazing work that the Lord does through those who are faithful. Reduction reveals the amazing work that the Lord does through those who are faithful. 
Now, quickly look at the details. Because of the 10,000, the 10,000, we've got this small group that laps like a dog laps. And then we've got this other group that kneels. Now, Gideon is being told at this point, there's a right way to do this, and there's a wrong way to do this. And these people that are remaining, this, this 300 that are left, those are the ones that I want you to get. Because there's a hunger, there's an urgency there. Get the water and get going. Not kind of kneeling and putting the shield down and kind of taking both hands and just kind of, kind of leisurely. He says, grab the ones who are hungry, who get down there, get on their face, grab the water, lick it up, and go. These are the ones who are conscientious. These are the ones who, who are ready. They're, they're wanting to go. They're, they're, they're anxious to get into battle, not like the other ones who are just kind of taking their time. And, and they have a clarity now. They have a focus in their hearts. They're not going to be negligent. They're going to be ready. They're just going to grab the water and go. And as you get them, you're going to find Gideon that even though the Midianites have 120,000 troops. And you're walking into battle with 300. 300. You've got 120,000, and then you've got 300. But you're going to find that they're courageous, and they're committed, and they're not concerned about themselves. They're not passive. They're not kind of just indifferent. They're hungry, they're ready, they're committed, and they're going to serve me. You know, so much of the Christian walk is about being faithful in the little things. The everyday consistency that seems boring. Being faithful, being consistent. We kind of look at those words and like, well, that's not very fun. That's, that's, who wants to be faithful and consistent? Like, that's so boring. Yeah, but God loves it. Who, who wants to be holy and set apart and have to make sacrifices in relationships and take a stand and say things that are uncomfortable to defend the word of God and, and stand up for Jesus when his name is being cursed and, and tell people about, about the gospel? Who wants to do that? That's, that's difficult. I want what's easy. Yeah, but that's what the Lord uses. Even says, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25, being faithful in what is small causes me to bless you with much. And it's the times when we are faithful in the small that he says, well done, good and faithful servant. So those sacrifices that you're making, those stands that you're taking, those, those sanctified choices that you are prioritizing in your life, they may not seem important now. They may not seem significant now. But the Lord says, I will bless them immensely. And you may not think it's very wonderful and very awesome to just be a faithful husband 
and to just be steadfast in your walk and to be a prayer warrior. You may not think that's very exciting. Nobody may see it. Nobody may, nobody may, may applaud you and say, well, look at them. They love to pray. And look at them. They faithfully change diapers in the nursery. Nobody may ever notice that except the Lord. And the Lord says, that's what I love. Because if you're faithful in the little, I will bless you in much. Now here's the conclusion. Let's draw to the end. Look at verse 19. Because these 300 have the opportunity, the unique opportunity to see the Lord's hand at work up close. Read the in-between between verse 8 and 19 later day. But Gideon and the hundred men who are with him, because he divides the 300 into three groups of hundreds, Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the night watch when they had just posted the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers which were in their hands, which was their strategy, great strategy. We're going to yell and we're going to break clay pots. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands were blowing and they cried a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran, crying out as they fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one another against even all throughout the camp. You get what he's saying? They're standing there in three groups, 100, and they've got the torch in one hand, and they got the trumpet in the other, and they blow the horns at the same time, and they say, for the Lord and for Gideon. And they throw down the pitchers, and there's a sound. Now, it's only 300 people. That's not very intimidating against an army of 120,000. But at that point, they get to see the Lord's hand up close. And all the 120,000 start to kill each other. They're not moving. They're not, they don't have swords. They're just standing there on the edge of the camp, holding these torches up and, and saying, okay. And they're watching chaos and destruction because God's hand was moving. And eventually they flee and they kill the rest of them. Now, the victories that you and I experience may not be as dramatic, but they're every bit as profound. We will see the Lord work in ways that we can't explain, ways that don't make any sense, like holding torches and breaking pitchers and blowing trumpets. But there is no doubt, listen now, last thought, there is no doubt that the Lord will work when we submit to him. And that may be scary and it may be unclear, but with light cooking, that reduction process is so important because it what is what brings us the greatest strength and intensifies the blessing. So let me ask the question that I asked earlier. What does the Lord need to reduce in your life? It may be correction. It may be refocusing. Maybe you're not walking with him. And he's saying, you got to reduce all that junk that's over here, all that old life stuff. you got to get rid of that. You need to surrender to me. Or it may be that you need something reduced so he can do a fresh work and a fresh blessing. Maybe he wants you to yield your control and your stubbornness and your pride so you can yield to him and trust him. 
What I love about Gideon is that he never questions the method. He just trusts. And I want to encourage you and I want to encourage me to do the same.